James 4, verse 1 says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Hence the title, What is the Source or the Source of Our Strife? What is the source? It would be good when we're going through something to know the cause of it, right? And that's really what James is saying. What's the cause of conflict? Uh, I came out of the business world, and I, I don't know if this is passe, if this is old, but they used to do something called a root cause analysis. Is that still going on in business? Any of you business people still going on? And so this was a way that if you did something wrong as a company, you failed to meet a deadline, uh, maybe you messed up a, a, an order, you would tell your client, we're going to do a root cause analysis. What that really means is we're going we're gonna to try to find out what the problem was in us processing this order and why when it got to you, we messed it up. Sometimes that was a tactic to make an excuse. Like, we'll really figure this one out. We're going to do a root cause analysis. Boy, that sounds very uh, professional. But if it doesn't produce change, it doesn't mean anything. And so James is going to do a root cause analysis for us this morning, spiritually speaking. And the temptation that we're all going to have is to think of somebody else during this message. Or you might start doing this. Did you, did you hear that? You, I'm going to get a copy of this sermon for so-and-so. Okay, you might do that. But you might want to listen first, okay? So James says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Now, we live in a world of conflict. We live in a world where people are debating and arguing and screaming at each other in freeway traffic. And there's arguments in seemingly every sphere of life. Backstabbing and quarreling and marriages that are dissolving because people can't get along. So we all understand the idea of conflict. We all understand that there's quarrels and conflicts, and, and you may, maybe even this week, maybe your household was in utter turmoil. Maybe there were fights every single day of the week, and maybe you've gotten to, the, to a point in a room like this, I'm sure that it's quite possible, maybe you've gotten to a point where you've thrown up your hands, and there's people who do this, and you've given up because you don't know how to overcome this stuff. You do the same dance with the same people over and over again. And you never seem to get to a solution. Or if the root cause has been revealed, it's still hard to overcome it. James is not speaking to the world here. That would be more convenient if he was, but he's speaking to the church. And we already know, as we've run through the chapters of James, that you know, people were going through trials. Some of them were blaming God. They were not responding well to their trials. People were making distinctions and partiality. They were claiming to be religious, but they weren't, really weren't. They were destroying one another with their tongues, chapter 3. They were claiming to be wise, but wisdom was absent among them. Each chapter has had you know, its share of direct um, confrontation to the church. And now he's talking about quarrels and conflicts among the people of God. And he says, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Now, the war, as we can see from the language here, the idea of members is probably the members of our body here. But 
We can think of a dual meaning here because there's a membership within the body of Christ. And so the, the church is, the, is a membership, if you will. We are members of the body of Christ. And sometimes what happens is that there's fights and quarrels within the body. Sometimes Christians are so busy running down other Christians, we're not getting to the work of God because we're too busy quarreling and being conflicted with other people. The result is a crop of unrighteousness, as we saw in chapter 3. It's not the wisdom that's from above. It's um, wisdom, look at chapter 3, verse 15, that is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy, James 3.16, and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above, 3.17, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who Make peace. So a few Sundays ago, we, we used this seed harvest analogy, the sowing and reaping. And we said, if you sow seeds of peace, you'll get a harvest of righteousness. But if you sow seeds of discord, if you're constantly throwing out bitterness and quarreling, you're going to get a crop of ugly stuff. And it's in relationships all over the world today. And so quarrels is uh, a Greek word from which we get the English word polemics. It relates to general, prolonged, and serious disputing or combat is often rendered war. Conflicts refers to a specific fight or battle. Both terms are used here metaphorically of violent personal relationships, which in the extreme can even result in murder, which is verse 2. We'll get to that in a second. So we're talking about Ongoing violent personal relationships. Uh, something we may not want to talk about in church on a Sunday morning, but here it is. Here's the idea of abusive relationships. Here's the idea of both physical and verbal abuse. It does happen outside and inside the church, and it's a sad, sad thing. There are ministries that exist for women, for example, to go to a battered women's shelter because there are men that are abusing their wives or their girlfriends. But it can happen anywhere. It can happen to children. It can happen, you know, a woman can be abusive to a man. It can happen everywhere, in every sphere. And it's one uh, way that someone gets their anger out as they lash out with the tongue, James chapter 3, or maybe even get physical. We can see the story of Cain and Abel very early in the Bible. And fights and quarrels. There are fights and quarrels on the playgrounds. There are fights and quarrels in classrooms. Sometimes there's a teacher who's fearful of her students or his students because they're afraid that they might just raise up in the middle of the class and begin to beat on the teacher or worse yet bring a gun into a school because they're mad at their teacher or mad at other students. This problem of quarrels and conflicts, the source of it is something we need to identify. In fact, the pundits all over our world, every time something uh, in the form of abuse happens and there's been terrible happenings I don't need to remind you of all over in theaters and schools and homes, is the pundits, the talking heads, are trying to figure out the source or the solution, right? They're trying to say, how do we fix it? The book of James actually is going to talk about that. 
James is going to say, this is what's going on. This is the root cause, and this is how we fix it. In verse 1, he says, is not the source your pleasures? The word pleasures is a Greek word called hedane. It's where we get hedonism or a hedonist. Hedonism is defined this way. It is the uncontrolled personal desire to fulfill every passion and whim that promises sensual satisfaction and enjoyment. The source of our conflicts is hedonism, connected to humanism. Because if God is removed from the equation of a people, the only thing left is to live for pleasure. Because you have no transcendent cause, you have no reason that you should die for others or serve others, and so it becomes all about you. This is the humanistic message that is really born out in hedonism, and it's this. You should get everything that you want for your life now because life is all about you and your pleasure. Is that the mantra of today's world? Tell me. It is. But again, if it were the world that James was addressing, then it would be easier for me to say, you know, if they just would get it together. But James is talking about an early church, a group of professing believers who are imbibing the ways of the world. They become hedonistic. They believe, this is one form of hedonism, that the belief is that pleasure is the chief good in life. And let me just tell you right now, that's a lie. And if you spend the rest of your life pursuing pleasure, you will become a bankrupt and empty individual. And the quicker you get there, the more you will realize that the top of the hill is not what they say it is. My wife and I had a chance to get away, and we were at a place where we were overlooking a harbor, and a couple young men walked up, and they were looking down, and in the harbor there was a yacht. And one young man joked with the other, and he said, you know what, I've never seen anybody ever crying on a yacht. <laughs> Really? Well, maybe you've never been on a yacht. <laughs> because just because somebody's on a yacht doesn't mean all their problems have gone away. We think that will solve our problems. If I could just be down there on that boat with the, what those people have. Look at what they have. That thing spins on the top, and I'm sure they got everything at their beck and call. Sure they do, but they're still humans. They're still dealing with the issues no matter where you are geographically. Sometimes we think, if I could just be on that boat, if I could just own an island, if I could have an island and a yacht, then, then what? There's an old saying, wherever you go, there you are. I know that's deep. You see, we think... Maybe it needs to be a change in geography. Maybe that boat will solve it. Maybe that car will solve it. Maybe another person, a different type of relationship. But the source of our problem is us. You see, if you believe that the next relationship that you move on to is going to solve all your problems, here's the problem. You're half the problem at least. So we think, oh, well, this will solve it or that will solve it. No, the issue is really us. 
It's that we don't want to be inconvenienced. We want our pleasures to be uppermost. We want what we want, how we want it, when we want it. And James says, if you take that attitude, you're a hedonist. Look at the Son of God. James might say, look at my brother, my half-brother when he was on the earth. He did not come to be served, but to what? Serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's what he's calling me to do. And that's what he's calling you to do. Oh, it's not easy. Oh, yes, we have to fight our flesh. So the battlefield is real. James says in verse 2, you lust. The Greek word here is epithumia, thumio. It, I think every time it's used in the New Testament, it's negative. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Now look at verse 2 in your Bible. You lust and you don't have what you want, so in order to get what you want, you got to get people out of your way. You commit murder. Now in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus was preaching and he, he brings this up, he talks about hating somebody without a cause. And so murder can take on a different idea here. It can be a metaphor, if you will, for hating someone or despising them or calling them a fool. So murder isn't always the literal act. You can murder someone's reputation. You can have murderous thoughts in your heart. So James says, here's the issue. You lust and you don't get what you want, so you kill. I mentioned Cain and Abel. But some of you may be thinking, but oh, that, that can't apply to the church. I mean, that's got to be outside the church. That can't be a believer. But there's a classic story. We just went over in 2 Samuel of a man after God's own heart who committed adultery and murder. And his name is David. And so just when we think, oh, I couldn't fall to that, we have to be careful. Now, I don't know that in the book of James, somebody had literally killed somebody else in the church. I'm not sure that's what James is saying. We don't have enough detail. But maybe it was that James was hearing that all these people do is fight constantly. So in essence, with quotes around it, they're murdering one another. I was thinking of some examples in our modern age, and this may be hard to take, but I'm going to say it. Abortion has really become something where babies are murdered because we want what we want and we don't want to be inconvenienced. Think about it. Now, what do you think heaven's view of that is? Now, we know that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ and we have all failed. And I'm not here to condemn anybody, but I want you to think about the issue, the debate in our culture. So a little baby is ravaged in the womb, destroyed in the womb, and for what? Because I don't want to be inconvenienced, because it's not the right time, because maybe I can't afford it. But you were willing to satisfy your lust in that moment, and then to dismiss of that innocent child because you were being inconvenienced. And by the way, most abortions in our nation, sadly, are elective. They're not for the life of the mother. And so this is what we're dealing with. James, once again, in our face, in our kitchen, 
He says, you lust and you don't have, so you commit murder. You're envious. Here's the idea of envying or being jealous of somebody else and you can't obtain. You want what they have, so you fight and quarrel. And then James says, here's the problem. You don't really pray about what you want. You don't have because you don't ask. This is a group of believers that has certainly lost its way. And James says, you even fail to pray. You have not because you asked not. Now, James is going to clarify something that I think we all need to hear, especially in a world where Christianity is sold as life improvement. Some of the biggest churches in America make promises to congregants that if you just do things this way, then you are going to be blessed and super blessed. Now look, God wants to bless you, but he wants you to be asking for the right things. Prayer is not a carte blanche, I pull the right lever, I get what I want. Oh, so the Bible says if I ask, then I have. So if I just ask, I'll have. And the answer is wrong. <laughs> look at verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask with what? Wrong motives. Have you ever been praying about something? Maybe you, you spent weeks in prayer over something and then you had an epiphany and you thought, you know what, why am I praying so hard over this thing? This is all about something I want and I'm not even sure my motives are right. I, I've had that happen where I've been praying about something and I've been asking the Lord and then, I, and then I had a moment like, is this really about God's kingdom? Is this really about the extension of the gospel? See, this is what prayer hopefully causes us to ask. Not my will be done on earth, but your will be done in heaven and on earth. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. There may be some of you who have heard the idea that if you just ask, you're going to get whatever you ask for. But here is a qualifier in the book of James. You can ask but not receive because your motives are wrong. And if your motives are wrong, God will not grant that request. That means that in your prayer life, God is sovereign. What do you mean, Pastor Michael? Here's what I mean. God is God. You are not. That's what I mean. So when you pray and you say, oh, Father, would you please do this and this? Look, the father, as we heard last Sunday from Ben, wants to bless his children, no doubt. He wants to richly bless us, but he doesn't want to give us what will hurt us. And if he knows that that thing that you've been so enamored with and you've been praying about is all about you and your pleasures, he's going to say, nope. Because father knows best. Those of you who are parents in the room know that there's some things that your children ask for that you know if you gave it to them, it would not be good for them. You're trying to teach them some deeper lessons. And some of you bought it just to quiet them. <laughs> can I have it? Can I have it? Can I have it? Can I? Okay! <laughs> Here! <laughs> Let's be honest. But we have a parenting class we're going to offer soon about that. <laughs> So James says, you've been asking, but your motives are wrong. Look at verse 3. You don't get it because your motives are wrong that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, there is a whole movement that is out there that says you can just pray 
and you're going to get what you want. And that's not true. John 15, Jesus says, verses 7 and 8, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. If you abide in me, John 15, 7, my words abide in you, in other words, my will, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father will be glorified if you bear what? Much fruit. That is not a carte blanche, pull the lever, and God's going to give you whatever you want. That is, if you're so closely walking with me, and you ask something that's my will in my name. By the way, if you ask something in the name of Jesus, that means it's associated with his will. Then you'll get whatever you wish. So if it's something kingdom-oriented, something about you know, the fruit of the Spirit, something to win somebody else to Jesus, something about the extension of God's kingdom or for God's glory, then be assured God wants to bless you with it. But this is not something where, hey, I just, you know, I've been told that if I just use this formula in prayer, I'm going to get whatever I want, and God's going to become my bellhop in the sky. James says that's wrong. If it's about you and your motives and your, your wrong motives and your pleasure... The Father's not going to supply it. And so you may pursue it, but in the end, it's not going to be the best thing for you. So there is a pleasure-mad Christian who has some spiritual sensitivity. He realizes his prayers or her prayers are inappropriate. Somehow he senses that his desire for a Maserati may not be a spiritual essential. So he asks for nothing. In fact, he doesn't pray much at all because few of the things he wants are high on the divine priority list. Secondly, some pleasure-seeking believers do express their wrongly motivated desires in prayer but do not receive. And then some people get disappointed because they've been sold a bill of goods, whatever I ask, and then it doesn't come. And then they wonder, well, is there a God? Or is this, am I doing the formula wrong? No, There's a God in heaven who wants you to learn to do his will, not your will. And that's one of the biggest things in the Christian life that's a struggle. Amen? To figure out, okay, Father, what is your will and how do I carry it out? And so Spurgeon says, when a man so prays, he asks God to be his servant and gratify his desires. Nay, worse than that, he wants God to join him in the service of his lusts. He will gratify his lusts, and God shall come and help him do it. Such prayer is blasphemous, says Spurgeon. But a large quantity of it is offered nonetheless. And it must be one of the most God-provoking things that heaven ever beholds, close quote. Hard, hard truth. But, but imagine how many prayers do go up each day that have to do with that. And so James Pretty heavy-handed, but here it is. He says, you adulteresses. The Greek word is moikos. Some of the older manuscripts say adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, some of you may be saying, what what does this mean? Does this mean that I can't be friends with someone who's a non-Christian? No. What this is saying is that if 
your whole existence has to do with being yoked up with the world system, which is hedonistic and pleasure-seeking at all costs, then you are going to be hostile to God. You're going to be fighting your maker if your whole existence has become defined by what you possess, what you have, the power, the money, you name it. James says that's what the world does. And if you yoke up with the world, then you're in hostility towards God. Hey, it's hard to hear, but here's the truth. And if you make yourself a friend of the world, you become an enemy of God. Turn over to 1 John, just a few pages to your right. 1 John chapter 2. John dealing with this same subject, 1 John 2 says these words. This is verse 15. 1 John 2, 15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, and by the way, the word here is agape. If they agape the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2, 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, verse 17, is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Turn back to the book of James. And so the idea of adultery or adulteresses is the idea of one who cheats in a relationship. We all know what adultery is is. And that's what James is in essence is saying. He's saying, look, just like Israel of old, if you do this, you commit adultery on your maker. He wants fidelity, don't you? If you come into a covenant relationship with someone at the altar and you say, I do, then your expectation, whether you are the bride or the groom, is fidelity. Define it, Pastor Michael. Here it is. Faithfulness. I commit to you, you commit to me, and the expectation is that we're going to be one. We're going to be committed to one another. When we enter the new covenant with God, we know God is faithful, and he's asking us to be faithful. He's asking us to show fidelity to him and his kingdom. He's asking us not to walk as the world walks. Such friendship with the world means that one is on a footing of hostility towards God. This is from Moffat. For it defies his will and despises his purposes. Disguise it as one may, it is an implicit challenge to God. Close quote. And so I heard of a story of a hip young man. He <clears throat> bought one of those cool cars. It was a Ferrari GTO. Pretty cool. Got to admit. He took it out for a spin. He stopped at a red light. An old man uh, on a moped pulled up next to him. The old man looked over the sleek, shiny car and asked, What kind of car you got there, Sonny? That's a Ferrari GTO. It cost a half million dollars, old man. That's a lot of money. Why does it cost so much? Because this car can go over 200 miles an hour, stated the proud young man. The moped driver asked, Mind if I take a look inside? No problem, replied the owner. So the old man poked his head in the window, looked around, Sitting back on his moped, the old man said, that's a pretty nice car. All right, 
Just then the light changed and the driver decided to show the old man just what the car could do. So he floored it and within 30 seconds the speedometer read 160 miles per hour. Suddenly he noticed a dot in his rearview mirror. It was getting closer. He slowed down to see what it could be and whoosh, something whipped by him much, much faster. What on earth could be going faster than my Ferrari? The young man said to himself. Then ahead of him he saw a dot coming toward him and whoosh, it went by him again, this time heading in the opposite direction. It looked like the old man on the moped. Couldn't be, he thought. How could a moped outrun a Ferrari? Once more, though, he saw the dot in his rearview mirror, followed by a bang as the speeding object crashed into the back of his coveted Ferrari. The young man jumped out and saw the old man lying on the pavement. He ran to him and asked, Is there anything I can do for you? The old man whispered, Unhook my suspenders from your rearview mirror. Yeah. Man, that's a fast moped. <laughs> oh, man. The lesson? Watch out what you get hooked to. Here's verse 5. We've identified the source. Now let's talk about the Spirit's role. Do you think that the scripture speaks, verse 5, James 4, to no purpose? He, God, jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Now, I know commentators have said that the language here is a little difficult. Uh, NIV says, do you think uh, scripture says without reason that the spirit, lowercase, he caused to live in us envies intensely? New King James says, do you think that the scripture says in vain the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. And the RSV says he yearns jealously over the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. I'll save you a lot of reading and debate to tell you that I believe that what James is saying is that the Holy Spirit lives in us, simply put. Because when you become a believer, you become what? The temple of the Holy Spirit. And you can grieve the spirit... And since we're in covenant with our maker, he yearns that we would be faithful to him. And when we are in quarrels and we are in friendship with the world and it's all about our pleasure seeking and wrong motives, the spirit has some jealousy towards us to bring us back to where we should be. Now, somebody says, wait a minute now. This is that whole jealous God thing of the Old Testament. Is God a jealous God? Yes. Here, here's the sense of it. Not in some weird, whacked out, unhealthy jealousy. But he is zealous for us to be in close relationship with him. And aren't you, if you're in a covenant with someone right now and someone was cheating on you, would you be jealous? You would, I hope. Because you're, you love that person and your expectation is that when you're in covenant with that person, they're going to be faithful to you and you to them. And jealousy would be the natural overflow. If you saw someone that you love in covenant with you messing around with somebody else or flirting with somebody else, that's how God feels in the healthiest way. And you should be, I should be kind of thrilled by this sense that God loves us so much that he's actually jealous for us. 
If he didn't care about you, he wouldn't care about what you do. But when you're flirting with the false gods of the world, God, the Spirit here in verse 5, gets jealous in the best sense of that word. A healthy, godly jealousy that you would be close to him and one with him. We, we, we experience it, humanly speaking, and we can understand how God would feel too. We can grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4. And apparently when we are flirting with the world or we go off into the world, the Spirit of God within us gets jealous for our commitment or recommitment to Him. That's why as a Christian, if you go running off back into the world and the pleasure-seeking of the world, you're going to feel an uneasiness in your soul. And that may well be the Holy Spirit saying to you, don't do that. Stop cheating on me. Come back. See, these are the realities of what it means to be a Christian. When we're walking in the Spirit, we see all those beautiful fruits. But when we're warring against the Spirit, Galatians 5, 17, the Spirit against the flesh and the flesh against the Spirit, sometimes we don't do what we want to do. And so the Spirit responds to this this way of life, if you will, where some, we'd have to say, if you have the Spirit, then you've got to be a Christian. So this can't be a professing Christian. This has to be a true Christian, but one that is carnal. The Holy Spirit's within them, but they're off in the world. They're off like the prodigal. They, they belong to the Father, but they've gone off to spend uh, their resources, their Father's resources on their own pleasures. The Prodigal came to his senses, we all know, but it took rock bottom and him being in the pig pen in the mud. And sometimes that's what it takes for us. So we run off to the world and the spirit begins to beat on us and says, what are you doing? Let's, let's have a close love relationship right here. You'll find all that you need. So let's talk about, we've talked about the source, the spirit's role or response. Let's see the solution. Final verse. But he, God, gives a greater grace, or in greater degree, God gives grace. So God will give grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but what does he do? He gives grace to the humble. The solution to quarreling and worldliness is found in one word. It's humility. The Hebrew word for humility literally is pictured in getting low. This is the word picture in Hebrew. Pride sits high so I can look down on everybody else. Humility gets low so I can look up. So I can be a servant to God and a servant to others. When I'm looking down at everybody, I'm prideful and I'm going to be in a wrong spot. In fact, I am going to be in opposition to God. Notice, look at verse 6. God is opposed to the proud. The word oppose means to resist, to withstand, to, uh, I think one commentator has it, that God puts himself in battle array against the proud. Imagine for you football fans, if you lined up on the line of scrimmage, on the other side was God. Ready! 99! Right? 
Some of you say, that's a weird image, Pastor Michael. What do you mean? Imagine if the other wrestler was God. The, all right, you put on your stuff, right? All right, you ready? But Jacob wrestled with God all night long, and then God zapped him on his hips. Never walk the same again. Look, if you want God to be in opposition to you, if you want to knock heads, if you want to wrestle, you can. Here's how you do it. Just be proud and quarrelsome and worldly. Then God will line up in battle array against you. And some of you have been battling God for weeks and months and years. And you keep hitting your head and you're like, oh, I think I'll be all right. Let's try that again. And you keep knocking your head against your maker. Can I just save you some bruises on your noggin? You're going to continue to lose. God will oppose the proud. But he will what? He will give what? Grace to the humble. Solution? Humble yourself. And God will give you grace, grace, and more grace. In fact, the idea here is it's inexhaustible. He'll give a greater degree. John 1.17, he'll give grace upon grace. You can bring your little cup to the Pacific Ocean and wonder, is there going to be enough water to fill my grace cup today? And God's waves of grace just keep coming and coming. And all you got to do is bring your cup and kneel and scoop it up and you'll get grace and grace and more grace to heal relationships, to heal worldliness, to quell conflicts. This is the healing antidote. Why aren't more people doing it? Just simply humble yourself. Doesn't it sound easy? Mm, by that reaction, I think not. Man, we all got to fight pride, right? We all have to fight responding in a way that is prideful. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that defies wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. A haughty look, a lying tongue. It seems clear as you go through the book of James, and the measuring stick hits you with a painful slap. How can I do this? How, how can I stop doing this dance? How can I get better in my relationships and the way I respond to difficulty in my walk with the Lord, not being selfish in my prayer requests? You can't. You need grace. And he wants to give you all that you could handle and more. And the way that you receive it is simply humility. Something like this. Father, I don't have the resources to stop responding this way. So would you help me? I need your grace. Will the Lord despise a prayer like that? If you said, I want to love my spouse better this week, would you give me the grace to love better this week? Your father's going to say, there you go. 
Would you give me the grace to be better in this situation, better at work? You name it. If it's about loving better, serving better, glorifying God more, you're going to get more grace than you need. Can I get a witness? God will be faithful to give you boldness to preach the gospel, to help you to overcome habitual sin patterns. Would you give me the grace and you humble yourself under his mighty hand and he will exalt you at the proper time as you cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. Do you believe it? So James gives us the source, how the spirit responds, and the solution. It's in verse 6. God will oppose you if you're proud, but he'll give grace if you humble yourself. Would you pray with me? Father, I know it's so hard, even as I say the words, as James uh, puts up the mirror of the word of God, how many times I have failed personally, Lord, to take a knee, whether it was literally or metaphorically, and say, Lord, would you give me grace to be better in this situation? Would you help me stop responding the way that I have a thousand times? Would you, instead of me trying to manufacture something from my flesh, would you give me your grace? Because I know your grace is sufficient for everything I need and my weaknesses. And when I'm weak, then I can be strong if I tap into grace. And sometimes, Lord, the truth is we just haven't plugged in, we just haven't taken those moments to get with you so we can be right when we get with others. So help us, Lord, with those priorities. Help us not to take for granted that we will respond this way without spending time with the face of grace who's Jesus. And our great high priest, I know, is the great dispenser of grace, and we come to a throne of grace to get mercy and help in time of need. And that section in Hebrews 4, Father, we know deals with when we're tempted, when we're struggling, when we want to give up, when we're tired of responding the way we do, you'll give us grace. If we just simply come to the throne of the King, and he'll give us all the grace we need. Would you keep your head and heart bowed? If you've not met this God of grace, if you've not received grace for your sin, if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and King, he is a prayer away, but he's going to ask that you repent of your sin, trust him as your Lord and Savior, believe in his death on the cross and his resurrection. And if you want to do that, if you want to trust him as your Savior and Lord, have your sin forgiven, Become a child of God. Right now, it's something like this. And I would just encourage you to pray. Lord Jesus, come into my life. I've sinned against you and I'm sorry. I believe you died on that horrible cross for me. I believe that you rose from the dead and I put my trust in you as my Lord, my Savior, my King, and my friend. Please change me from the inside out. Help me to follow you all of my days. In Jesus' name. And if you're a believer and this has hit really close to home and you need grace and you want to change, he's also a prayer away for you. So would you take just some moments, as I'm going to as well, just reflect on the word, just let it sink down into your soul and respond as James would tell us, 
Not to be merely a hearer of the word, but a doer. And so, Father, for those who are doing some business with you, I just pray that you give them grace upon grace to see positive change in areas where there's been failure, struggle, quarrel, worldliness, lust, all all these things, Lord. Do you just heal all of us of that and help us to walk out one day at a time your priorities by your grace for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.